Welcome to the OSMA Talks podcast series, hosted by Oklahoma State Medical Association President, Dr. Larry Bookman, MD. Honored today to have the Attorney General of the State of Oklahoma, Mike Hunter, uh, and we're going to talk about some of the health-related issues that the Attorney General has been very busy with this past year. As you all know, Oklahoma was the first to have an, a settlement with some of the opioid uh, companies, and a lot of questions have been raised since the trial as well as the settlement that occurred prior to that. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Good to be with you, Dr. Bookman. Always. Um, as I said, you've spent a lot of time on the opioid uh, crisis uh, this we last have. year or two. Uh, we had Tevia and uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals actually have a settlement. Mm -hmm. We then had a trial with Johnson & Johnson. Can you talk about both the settlement, were you happy with what happened there, as well as the trial? Uh, the judge came back with a $100 million uh, mistake which is more than just a decimal point. Seems um, like. <laughs> and um, are, is the state of Oklahoma happy with what happened? Well, I'll start with the, the Johnson & Johnson uh, case, the seven-week trial and the outcome there. Uh, I, I want to first of all say that we felt like the judge was eminently fair with regard to how he approached discovery, pretrial issues. Uh, the trial was conducted in a way that allowed uh, everything that the defendants wanted before the judge, everything that we wanted before the judge, and that was the benefit of a of a bench trial. There's not as much, uh, I guess, white-knuckled attention uh, with respect to stuff that a juror might uh, inappropriately weigh or evaluate in a way that's prejudicial or not probative. Uh, but the judge allowed the case to proceed. Uh, he was thoughtful, attentive, and at the end of the day, um, we got a decision in which all of the causation that we had advocated, uh, Johnson & Johnson was responsible for, um, all of the liability that we advocated, that we argued Johnson & Johnson needed to be um, held accountable for, all of those findings were in his order. And so the record, as far as we were concerned with regard to the defendant's responsibility for the mess uh, that they left the state, that they've left the state, uh, very happy with that. The thing that we were not happy with and are appealing is the um, award. Uh, we wanted a multi-year award that would allow the state to deploy resources, get people well, and that is a multi-year process, getting people over a substance use disorder. So the, the basis of our appeal is just that. We think that the record before the court uh, justifies a multi-year award. Uh, we're hopeful that the Supreme Court is going to look at that and agree with us that we made the record. So we disagree with the judge's award. It's um, just south of uh, half a billion dollars, but it's not sufficient in our judgment to deal with the public nuisance that the opioid epidemic represents and to clean up the mess that uh, Johnson & Johnson left for the state. The settlements that we entered into 
uh, with Purdue and Teva. You know, Purdue was always in a position of being able to not just threaten bankruptcy, um, but act on that, you know, threat, if you will. They're a privately held company. It's a much more simple proposition uh, for uh, that kind of a business structure to go into bankruptcy. Their position was very cold-bloodedly, look, you know, go through discovery, depose our people, but we're not going to trial in Oklahoma. We're going to declare bankruptcy first. So the negotiations that we that we had with them, which were uh, mediated by former federal judge uh, Lane Phillips, well, we finally got to a point where they said, look, if you can figure out a way to distinguish Oklahoma from other states, we'll consider that kind of an architecture. So the OSU Health Sciences Center has a program that they stood up a few years ago, the Center for Wellness and Recovery. Its, its focus is literally uh, dealing with addiction in a very focused way. They've already received several million dollars in grants. So our uh, proposal uh, to Purdue was, look, this can be a national center for addiction science, and that will allow you to contrast uh, your settlement with Oklahoma. Uh, we think this can be the MD Anderson of addiction science, if you will, for the country. So where we, uh, where we concluded with them, the biggest part of the $270 million is a $200 million endowment that's both um, a product of Purdue Pharma dollars as well as some of the owners, the uh, Sackler family. So that's, um, that's the biggest part of the Purdue settlement. And subsequently, they have declared bankruptcy, but we're outside that 90-day period, so this money's not going to be clawed back. The Teva settlement, $85 million. Uh, Teva, you know, it was an ability to pay uh, sort of proposition with Teva. They're um, actually the largest employer in Israel, but they are heavily burdened with debt. And so as we looked at the company and we looked at, um, you know, their resources and their flexibility, the $85 million number was, was something we came up with and we looked carefully at their financials. Um, but that $85 million is earmarked to be deployed to deal with the epidemic. Uh, the OSU Health Sciences Center Award is similarly a focus, um, getting people in the state uh, who are suffering from a substance use disorder the help they need. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson case, you know, back to where we are with that. I mean, we, we're hopeful that the Supreme Court is, uh, again, going to look at the record at trial carefully and allow us to approach this on a multi-year basis. So stay tuned with regard to the Johnson & Johnson case. And, and that brings up several questions. Um, let's stick with the Supreme Court. Are we talking about the state Supreme Court? Yes, sir. And what the judge said at the time was is that the, the state had not provided adequate evidence for long-term um, uh, substance abuse treatment. Uh, and that it could be brought forth again in the future. Is that planned or is our strategy just to take it to the Supreme Court and do you feel like you made an adequate argument or will additional information be provided to the Supreme Court? There were at least half a dozen experts that testified uh, about our damage model and the um, multi-year challenge that uh, addiction represents to the state. Um, 
we, again, are confident we made our case. We disagree with the judge. We think that there's plenty in the record he could have relied on. There was nothing that the defendant put forward in the way of an alternative abatement plan. And so, again, the idea that the evidence that we put on, which was mostly not contradicted by the defendant, uh, we think that stands for itself. And as I said, we're optimistic the court, uh, Supreme Court, Oklahoma Supreme Court, is going to look at this and be more thoughtful and um, award a, uh, a judgment that will allow us to deal with the multi-year challenge that the opioid epidemic represents. So the the trial the trial judge um, again couldn't have been more fair, couldn't have been more thoughtful. We just disagree with him as to what is needed to abate the epidemic. If the Supreme Court sides with you in the state of Oklahoma, is there other appeals beyond that, or is that the end? The only appeal that's available to the defense will be to the United States Supreme Court, and. You know, we really think this is the Alamo. Um, the United States Supreme Court very rarely grants certiorari to decisions by state Supreme Courts. So that is an, I think that is an unlikely uh, remedy uh, for the defendants. Uh, we think whatever the Oklahoma Supreme Court decides is, is going to be the end game. Okay. Uh, we won't call you Davy Crockett then. Okay, please don't. Yes. Um, so when you talk about the Oklahoma State University getting the $200 million, uh, that explains why they got it, because mm -hmm. they already have a program, program set up. Right. Does the $85 million from Teva also go to them, or what's planned for that? How will that be used? So the plan for both the $85 million as well as uh, any monies that uh, emerge from the Johnson & Johnson case, uh, they'll be uh, the the Teva money is already in a segregated treasury fund earmarked to deal with the epidemic. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson money percent to the order similarly would, would go into um, a segregated account and be earmarked to deal with the opioid epidemic. So that money is going to be uh, dispersed, appropriated by the legislature, consistent with, again, that earmarking uh, condition. One of the problems Oklahoma has um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, statistics show more than 60% of our incarcerated pa uh, people, patients, um, have either mental health or substance abuse disorder. We have no program in the state of Oklahoma for our incarcerated patients. Do you see any plans for a true program for the incarcerated? Well, I do my best to try to stay out of uh, decisions by the legislature, um, but this is one where uh, I, I think it's important for me to take a position that's consistent with all the work that we've done, you know, all the information that we've gathered, the discovery uh, in our cases. Uh, it's important that this money go to the problem, and the problem is multidimensional, and whether you are in a correctional facility or outside a correctional facility, uh, it's important that, that the state, to the extent that we can, take some responsibility for getting that person. Um, at, you know, Doc, you know this. Uh, addiction is a brain illness. Uh, it is not any kind of representation of, of somebody's goodness. Uh, 
somebody um, that is becomes addicted is not necessarily a sinner. Uh, people, whether they know it or not, some people have a vulnerability. They're just physiologically uh, engineered so that they're born with something that makes them vulnerable to alcohol or drug addiction. And so treating that as a brain illness, treating it as something that as a public health responsibility uh, we need to address is very important. And it's, it's a part of the strategy for dealing with the epidemic. And uh, so just to be clear, you know, whether you've got the substance use disorder and you're in state custody or not, I think we've got a responsibility to help you through it. Okay. Yeah, we know that the opioid epidemic and the addiction crossed all socioeconomic lines. It crossed all um, racial lines. Um, everybody was affected. Um, and no, no question about it. So it, it is a large problem that both the healthcare community as well as um, our legal community has to deal with, and we work together yes, to sir. try to correct it. Very much so. One of the issues that um, I found interesting and I would like your opinion on is that CMS has come back with the fact that they want to claw back. They want some of that money as well. Uh, and the state legislature has now said, oh, we want that money to go into the general fund. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, the arrangement we have with, uh, with the legislature, which, which I think is good government, is that the money is and has gone into the state treasury, uh, but it's very clearly earmarked pursuant to the court order uh, to deal with the opioid epidemic. So I want uh, your listeners to focus on that. Um, the CMS issue is sticky. Uh, of course, the federal government um, assists states, uh, particularly on, this, uh, on the Medicaid side of things, uh, with regard to a whole host of, of public health challenges. So there, there have been, in the past, uh, federal funds expended uh, that were focused on and deployed to deal with the epidemic. And so our challenge is, and, and we work with CMS on almost a daily basis with our, you know, we have a, we actually have a Medicaid fraud unit in our office that's uh, federally funded. So we, we frequently will obtain um, settlements, court awards that are similar to this. So we know, I guess we know the equation that we need to bring to the table. Uh, there's a, I think there's good positive uh, dialogue right now with CMS to get this resolved. I'm hopeful that it's, that the resolution will be uh, at a level that doesn't in a significant way impact the totality of the, particularly the Purdue Award. So again, they've been good to work with in the past on these issues, so I'm not concerned about um, the clawback zeroing out or significantly eroding the the level of funding that you know we were able to negotiate. One of the issues that we've sort of touched on um, is mental health parity. Um, that's a uh, big topic uh, nationally. Uh, I was at the American Medical Association and we uh, passed resolutions uh, on mental health parity. The state of Oklahoma has um, basically does not have a law 
on mental health parity uh, that coincides with federal law. Um, so what do you see as the future of trying to get not only laws um, and from your standpoint enforcement of even federal law at this point on mental health parity and you might explain what mental health parity means. Well, ensuring that, you know, whatever, whatever um, insurance coverage that's, uh, that's available um, takes note of and uh, allows for there to be coverage with respect to mental health issues similar to issues that affect you in more of a physiological way. Um, I, I've, I've always been in an informed way. Um, supportive of, of parity with regard to, you know, how we as a, as society treat um, mental health vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, uh, as I, get, I guess maybe physiological health is, is a term I'll use. You can correct me if that's not accurate. Um, but I'm committed to work with the legislature uh, to try to come up with, a, with an approach, and that's part of, part of our job is helping the legislature in the drafting of bills that um, allows them to have certainty that they're dealing with a problem in the way that they intend to. So uh, I'm, I'm for it. I know it's not an easy sell, um, but uh, you know I'm available to work with the legislature to try to figure out a way to get it done. Physical ailments versus mental ailments. The mental would also include addiction. Um, and so exactly. will addiction be included exactly. in the parity? Exactly. Okay. And I guess that's, I guess that would be my, at this point, that's my primary motivating uh, consideration in uh, taking a position on this. Have you had, and you may not want to comment on this, but discussions with the legislature, with the insurance commission, with the insurance companies. Um, is there support? Is there opposition? Um, where do we stand in the state on that? Well, I think we're, we're at the starting line, uh, so I want to be candid about that. I think we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I would characterize the conversations that I'm having as uh, preliminary. Um, so there are miles to go before we sleep relative to getting this issue, this issue addressed, but um, I don't want to get marbles in my mouth with you about it. I'm for it, and I look forward to working with the stakeholders to figure out a way to get it done. We've had, in the last two years, we've seen the state pass a, a referendum petition on marijuana. Uh, we now have um, literally several hundred thousand marijuana card holders. We have more than 1,400 uh, providers who can give uh, these cards. Have you seen issues from the Attorney General's office on the referendum um, and the results of uh, the marijuana industry in Oklahoma? Well, one of the one of the things that's important in this job is to, in a in a democratic way, uh, take note of the will of the voters and so there was there was a uh, a clear statement that the electorate made uh, back in 2018 with regard to medical marijuana um, I went on the record during the campaign um, I was concerned that the uh, 
language in the state question. And of course, you don't read the whole body of statutory language. You just read a summary. Okay. So some of the concerns that, that I had with regard to this, this being a very liberal, and I, I think inappropriately liberal, in terms of just how easy it was going to be, you know, to get a license and to participate, you know, in the enterprise. Um, I think the health department has done the best they could to roll this out and to have uh, appropriate oversight uh, subject to the law that was passed. And, and so you, uh, in this job uh, and as a state regulator, you have to be cognizant of the fact that you have to follow the law. And that's the most important consideration that I have in this job. So I've, we've worked closely with the health department to assist them in dealing with some of the questions that have come up. Um, so where we are is, uh, you know, at some point there's going to be uh, more issues than there are. Uh, there is, um, there has been a significant expansion of um, the uh, enterprise of both uh, growing and providing medical marijuana to customers. So at, at this point, um, I guess my position is we're following the law. Uh, but we're also looking very carefully at problems as they develop because uh, there are going to be problems and there is going to be a need, need to address those problems. But for the time being, I'm just doing my job. Well, I, I understand that there's certainly been problems in other states. Uh, we did a lot of research on it um, and um, in Colorado. Um, they've certainly had their share of uh, complications from it. Uh, there's no question that we passed a liberal law and the idea that it is medical marijuana since there are no medical indications is also somewhat questionable. Uh, but my real question is is that I recently received a, an email hmm. uh, from an out-of-state quote company uh, saying if you want your uh, medical license if you want your medical card quickly just call us $150 and we'll get it for you um, the law when passed said there needed to be a patient physician uh, relationship mm. yet we see billboards now popping up uh, people from out of state saying just call us on the internet we'll get you your card how is that a relationship and, and what does the, the Attorney General's office feel about We're looking at that. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, from a medical community, we're quite uh, concerned. Well, yeah, the law is very, very clear that there, there needs to be a consultation and that um, a, uh, my memory is that the license need to, needs to be issued by a board-certified physician, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So um, that that internet activity uh, may be inconsistent with state law. And all I can say is that it has our attention. Okay. So it at least has your attention yes, at sir. this point, because that's been a question posed to me by several, is how can this be? And we're like, I don't know, it doesn't fit with, as I interpret the law, but I'm not a lawyer. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll wait to see what happens with that in the future. Um, other than the, the marijuana and the opioid um, and, of course, mental health we've talked about, there's been a lot of other 
issues related to the Attorney General's office uh, in health care. Um, and you have clearly stated in talks that I've attended that you're really not out to prosecute doctors who may make a single mistake. But doctors are fearful um, because of all the laws, because of all the changes that are occurring fairly rapidly, mm. quite honestly. Can you just talk about, from the Attorney General standpoint, from the legal standpoint, what you're really looking for from physicians at this point um, as far as you know, those that you may prosecute, those that you won't, um, so that physicians have a better idea what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Well, the changes, the, the statutory changes uh, with respect to the limits on prescribing opioids uh, have been a product of collaboration with the medical community. And we've always taken the position uh, that we don't want to interfere with the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, but it was clear uh, you know, particularly given best practices in other states, the direction from the CDC, that it made sense uh, for there to be state policy on the prescribing of opioids. So ultimately where I think the law is in the state, uh, there is more oversight that has to be exercised um, by prescribers uh, with respect to the use of opioids. But the at the end of the day, if you have a patient who for whom there is not a reasonable alternative and you have a patient whose condition is such that opioids, opioids are the appropriate um, process, the, the, the appropriate um, pharmaceutical to deal with their condition, uh, there is, I believe, uh, ample authority for a doctor uh, to treat a patient in that fashion. There is more oversight that's required, but the need to provide opioids for acute pain on the back end of surgery, uh, for palliative care, and for that universe of patients for whom there aren't reasonable alternatives, uh, those are um, all, we think, countenanced and um, consistent with the law that we passed. Uh, with regard to law enforcement and the decisions that we make, uh, I, I think that we have criminally charged less than half a dozen prescribers since I've been AG, not quite three years. And I don't think there is any person in the medical community who would <laughs> disagree with the decisions we've made. I guess the two categories I would say that we look askance at are, number one, uh, doctors who act in reckless disregard for their patients' welfare. Uh, and the cases that we filed in that category, again, I don't think anybody would look at whether they're a doctor or not and disagree with our decision. Um, then, unfortunately, there are people, uh, licensed physicians, who are running pill mills. It's very much a minority within a minority of a minority. Um, but it is happening, and when we see pill mills, uh, we act with dispatch to get them shut down and charge people as if they were drug dealers. So those are the only two activities <laughs> of prescribers that we're interested in. Um, 
doctors have to exercise discretion. Um, they have to do, based on their training and education and experience, they have to make decisions about their patients. And I, I, I just want to underscore that uh, we're not interested in any way, shape, or form with playing gotcha with those kind of decisions. But the, the outliers that I've described, uh, those are the only people that we're interested in. And I think that's important for our medical audience to understand. Um, as everybody knows, starting January 1, e-prescribing will become the law uh, for everything from uh, Schedule 2 through 5. Um, the uh, new prescription pads uh, are to be out by January 1. Um, the health department uh, has uh, guaranteed us that they're being printed and that every physician in Oklahoma will receive a pad of 100 scripts. Um, if uh, there is no um, electricity to your office or you don't own a computer system, uh, these pads can then be used if you have a waiver. Uh, but my last question for you is, is that what I just said where there's no electricity, the question was asked recently of me when I was at a conference, well, what if my computer shuts down, but I still have lights on? Does that mean that I don't have electricity? How can I use the pad for that, or do I have to wait till the computers come back? Um, and I didn't have an answer. I said use common well, sense. Yeah. What, I, what is the answer from your? Well, standpoint? common sense is the answer to most questions <laughs> like that. I, I think that the challenge that we have had and the advice and counsel, strong advice and counsel from law enforcement was there was simply too much diversion going on with regard to paper prescriptions and nobody likes that. So this is going to present an inconvenience, I, I think hopefully just rarely uh, for folks, but it's in, the, it's in the interest of public health and safety and I have no regrets uh, or second thoughts about the fact that we've gone to e-prescribing. When the computers are shut down, are we going to be allowed to use those pads? Well, again, common sense, uh, thoughtfulness, <laughs> and uh, we always try to exercise pragmatism in our office. So again, if, if there's an exigency and it can be documented, um, I can't imagine anybody in law enforcement that's not going to take that into account. Okay. I think that's what people wanted to hear. Um, I want to take this time to thank Attorney General Hunter, thanks for being Larry. here. Good to be with it's you. It's been a pleasure. I hope the information has been informative to not only uh, the physicians that are listening, but also the public, so that everybody understands health care is improving in Oklahoma. We want to be a top 10 state, as our governor has requested. We've got to make changes, and the changes that are being made are being made with uh, the inclusion of the healthcare community. Um, I've sat on several committees, as have my peers, uh, with the Attorney General, with the Governor, with the Legislature. Uh, we want healthcare to improve. We want to treat the opioid epidemic in a scientific way, and we want to make everybody healthy. Um, with that, I'm going to say thank you, and I look forward to the next time that we have OSMA Talks. Learn more at okmed.org and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Have a question for Dr. Bookman? 
email him at osmatalks at okmed.org. Okay